you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We will be in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. So if you would, please open your Bibles to John 5. This will be the last time we are in the book of John until at least August. So I'm going to make this one a good one for you. Nice and long, nice and lengthy. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. I was looking up online and found this article from 2018. It's from The Guardian. It captured this headline, God, minerals, and mud, thousands flock to Fiji's miracle spring. Found that very intriguing. And so I'm going to read just a couple excerpts here, but the column starts this way. The crowds begin to gather before dawn, snaking along with dusty back roads of Televu district in eastern Fiji, humid jungle pressing at them from every side. Ambulances and open-top trucks bearing stretchers are allowed to pass first, then those who can walk, And finally, the healthy arrive, loaded up with empty water bottles to carry home to sick relatives and friends. It goes into this whole description of how these healing waters were really found in this remote part of the island of Fiji. And story has it, the gentleman who basically uh, mans this place, his father had experienced some healing from these waters And it became a domino effect, and it became a very popular thing to where people from all over the world come here for that purpose. And so it says, All have descended upon a remote spring in the Western Division mountain range, a spring reputed to have extraordinary healing properties, miracle waters. In one month, maybe 50,000 people visit, who wears, and, and this gentleman I can't say his name, but he wears a fluorescent vest to help stand out from the hordes of hopeful invalids, he says. Some people will come in a wheelchair. Some people come by ambulance. I massage the mud into people's skin after they have showered and drunk the water. It works, the miracle water, every single time. It's an odd story. It's a unique story. It's not exactly remaining front page news. Um, even today, but it has a striking similarity to what it is we're getting into in John's gospel in the fifth chapter. The waters of this story are as equally mystical, and those in attendance in this story are those who are most desperate for healing, that referred to as invalids. In a moment of just complete honesty here, I, I have yet to experience what it means to be an invalid. I don't know the loneliness, I don't know the depression, I don't know the sorrow, I don't know the grief, I don't know the hurt. I don't know what it's like to depend on others for help due to being blind or lame or a paralytic. I have no real concept of that, and for that, I have compassion. But what I'm seeing in this story is desperation. A desperation that takes people to the realm of the mystic. Spending thousands of dollars, thousands of hours by plane and car, strategically planning 
just to get to or receive healing water of Fiji. In all the effort of trying to do good or receive good, thousands upon thousands of people are flocking to water. And at the end of the day, they are overlooking the living waters. Yes, they're fusing this healing waters with Christianity. They're fusing it. But if you come back and you evaluate what's going on, the Bible never tells us of such a healing spring outside of Christ. The Bible never tells us that we have to search the globe far and wide to find healing. The Bible tells us that being physically healed is not the goal of the gospel. But it is definitely a fruit, if you will, of what Jesus does. And we must understand, Jesus' entire ministry wasn't with the aim of healing everybody. He passed over a lot of people he could have healed, even in today's story, one out of perhaps dozens or hundreds or thousands of invalids that Jesus does not heal. And this story does highlight somebody who is sick, but in particular, one man. And so for defining purposes, an invalid means to be sick. And as a result, in a state of weakness or incapacity. That is to be sick, to be ill, to be disabled. So today's story is deeper than physical ailment. It's a story about sinners who are spiritually invalids. The Bible refers to this as weakness. It's actually coming from the same Greek word. As sinners, we are weak, frail, incapable of making ourselves spiritually strong and alive. And this is where there is a need for a different kind of water, a living water that heals and strengthens the sinner's soul. And so in the story of Fiji, the waters that are constantly flowing, we will not only, or the constantly flowing have been used to not only just heal people in on the moment or in the moment on spot, but used to fill water bottles and eventually be smuggled into other countries and sold on the black market. People making a profit off of this. And so what we see is the stirring waters of Fiji have essentially not only stirred waters of healing, but stirred waters of controversy. And so the water in today's story is also stirring. Not only will one find healing by the living waters, but the waters of the religious leaders will be stirred in such a way that they will begin to seek the very life of Jesus. And so to the point, we'll see today stirring waters of healing and controversy. Stirring waters of healing and controversy. And so we'll see really the stirring of troubling waters, the stirring of healing waters, the stirring of condemning waters, the stirring of holy waters, and the stirring of deadly waters. And so to begin in verse 1, the stirring of troubled waters. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so briefly, if we remember, Jesus had gone back into Galilee the place where he was rejected, a prophet without honor in his hometown. And he knew that he was rejected, yet he turned back and went into Galilee, went back into the darkness, 
with the hopes that he would bring the great light as prophesied by Isaiah. And so he goes to an official, an official meets him, asking him to heal his son. Jesus heals his son, and it takes another day for the official to get back to his son to find that Jesus did, in fact, heal him long distance at the same time that Jesus' words were spoke. So Jesus is up in the north. He's in the region of Galilee. Jerusalem is down to the south. And so after this, Jesus heads down to Jerusalem. We're not told what the feast is in particular. There's no specifics given here. And that is for the reason that John is wanting us to pay attention to what's happening in the story more than the feast that is taking place in Jerusalem. And you'll notice also the language, the Jews. There's been a lot of discussion about this and around this. But the reason that John writes in these terms is not for the purpose of describing an ethnic group. But what John is doing is he's describing a really a political scene, a political picture of religious leaders. John himself was a Jew. Many of the Galileans that Jesus was around were Jews. So the issue wasn't an ethnic one, but the issue became really a political and religious one. And so there's the distinction. So Jesus, a Jew, going down and he confronts ultimately the Jews. And so here's some of the political issues that began to unfold and develop during the literal time between Jesus being in Jerusalem last and coming back again. You begin to see in Rome, if you were to study history, and I pulled this from a couple of scholars here, that Rome had these anti-Semitic rulers. There was an anti-Semitic ruler, meaning an anti-Jewish ruler, who wanted to position Rome in such a way to be on guard for possible insurrections and hostile takeovers, if you will. Kind of like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. The Jews began to multiply, and out of fear of being taken over, what does he do? He enslaves them, right? So Rome is out of fear of potential insurrection or the Jews taking over. He kind of buckles down. And so then he narrows, they narrow the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin basically was like the Jewish Supreme Court. So they ruled over a certain area. And so Rome then now squeezed that down to where they could only rule in a much smaller arena. And this makes sense because when Jesus comes before Pilate, they, the Jews have to ask Pilate if they can crucify him. Whereas before, it would have been something they could have just done by their own. We also see during this time the rise of zealots. We mentioned this before, but basically these are the, the God and country folks. right? They are going down with a fight. And you're not going to kick them out of their land. You're not going to take their swords from them. They will fight you to the bitter end. And in fact, they did. And not allowing Rome to kill them, they fell on their own sword. And so essentially you have the rise of zealots because they're seeing the government crack down. And so they're beginning to rise up. And so you're beginning to feel the tensions of the time. And even the religious leaders are feeling the tension of the time between Rome and the zealots and what's going on. So Jesus comes in. He comes in and we see ultimately this transition that would result in the the crucifixion of Jesus. 
and he went up to Jerusalem. This shows, come on, buddy, let's just do this together. It shows again that Jesus is not running from difficult situations. He didn't run from Galilee, though he was rejected, and he is definitely not running from Jerusalem. I would say the situation in Jerusalem may be a little bit more difficult, although the people of Nazareth were trying to throw him off off a cliff, right? But it's going to be ultimately deadly for him in Jerusalem. But here's what's driving Jesus. It is the mission to get to the cross, to die, to resurrect for sinners. And so when it seems that the deck is stacked against you, are you one to retreat or are you one to engage? When it seems that everything's stacked against you in life or even as a Christian, right? There's a lot of tension in our country right now. There is a government that is feeling the pressure of an uprise from its people and is doing everything that it can to appease a certain crowd while maybe perhaps trying to silence another. There's a rise of evangelicals who are becoming zealot-like in their response to government overreach and overpower. The tensions are rising in our country, and I would be surprised if it didn't do anything except increase. Jesus had a similar political charge or climate in his day. And what did he do? He went into Jerusalem. He went not on a political campaign, nor did he go to lead a protest, nor to talk the zealots off the ledge. He went because it was necessary for the moving forward of the mission to save sinners. Jesus wasn't afraid of what was going on around him. And so I simply want to start today by saying that we need to be ready and willing to engage, not retreat, not build bunkers and stock up on artillery, not to become full of anger, rage and bitterness towards the immorality and strong arming that seems to be taking place in our country. Rather, I want to ask that you take courage And embolden yourself to enter into the chaos, to enter into the mess with a focus to bring the gospel of Jesus to bear in the midst of a fallen world. The world and those who fear man will retreat, but you and I must not do so. We are to engage, bearing the weapons of love, the artillery of mercy, and lead people to the refuge known as Christ. And so with that, Jesus heads into the stirring storm of hostility and he goes to a very place no one would expect for the much-anticipated Christ. You think as he's going into Jerusalem, he's gonna, there he goes, there goes the king, he's going to march to the temple. And we see in verses 2-9, through nine, that's not where he goes. And so we begin to see the stirring healing waters. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Stirring healing waters. This is the only place we see in the four Gospels that this story takes place. This unique place, this pool by the Sheep Gate. For many years, it was, one, it was questioned as to whether or not this place actually existed or, or where this story came from. And really, in most recent history, we have been able to verify that this is an actual part of the story because of the Dead Sea Scrolls delivering that information to us, as well as excavation revealing this location near Jerusalem. And so you can actually Google it. And find images of tourists walking by this place. It looks like it's about 30, 40 feet down from where you would stand. And this is a place that I've seen with my own eyes as I walk through the city as well. So this is a place that is verified both physically as excavation and also within the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's this beautiful location outside the temple. And it is filled with people who are sick, who are marginalized who are outsiders. It doesn't seem like the place that a king would go to first. And John uses a very interesting list of words here. John becomes very specific. He wasn't very specific as to which feast Jesus was going to, but he was very specific as to the setting of this story. And he described the multitude of invalids being blind, lame, and paralyzed. It's an interesting use of words, but it gives us a very specific, clear picture of the environment. People who were unable to see. People with weakened bodies, weakened limbs, unable to do perhaps just normal things. And even those paralyzed. Parts of their body, limbs of their body, unable to be used no matter how much they wish they could be. But Jesus doesn't just draw his attention or give attention to every single person there, the multitudes there. He hones in on one man. We don't know the man's name. We don't know the man's story. We know very little information about him. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. I am 38 years old. I cannot imagine whatever it is that this man was dealing with. For nearly four decades of his life, whether he was born with this or this came at a later time, he had to suffer from whatever it is he was dealing with. And so what we do see, though, while we're not made aware of his specific suffering, we are made aware of what Jesus saw. And it says, verse six, that Jesus saw him. The man didn't see Jesus. This isn't the same as the official in the last story where the official found Jesus and ran to him. This is a story of Jesus finding him and seeing him. And Jesus didn't just look upon him by accident or like trip over his feet or something like that and apologize and then notice him. Jesus had seen him. He had purposely set his eyes upon him and he saw him lying there and he knew just by looking at him that he had been there a long time time. And I would say just by this description, it's not that Jesus just saw this man, but he really studied this man. He studied his suffering. He took it in. 
He saw that he had been suffering a long time. And then he engaged him. And he asked the question, do you want to be healed? It seems like an odd question, right? Almost like a rhetorical question. Why would you even ask that question? Of course he would want to be healed. But I believe the answer that Jesus is looking for was not so much focused on just the healing, but whether or not this man could see Jesus. (laughs) And so the sick man answered him, Sir, he doesn't answer him, Messiah, my Lord, my God, Sir, some respect. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. There was this mystic belief. This is where the story of Fiji comes in to tie, where it ties in. There was this mystic belief that an angel would stir these waters. And so when the waters would begin to be stirred, whoever stepped into the water first would then be healed. So there are literally multitudes of people just focused, hawkish on this water, waiting for it to be stirred because it's first come, first serve. Whoever jumps in first gets to be healed. And this man says, look, every time I try to get in, I, I, I'm late to the game. I can't ever get in there. And so this man was just hoping for a first come, first serve sort of healing. And the whole time, The man was watching and waiting on the water, completely blind, lame, paralyzed to the reality that the living waters was right in front of him. I would say just the same as the Samaritan woman. The man, more than his physical sickness, was suffering from a completely sickened soul. So Jesus said to him, get up. Take your bed and walk. I mean, the guy didn't really supply a sufficient sort of answer, right? A faith-filled answer that would cause this to take place. And why? Why does that matter? Because this isn't about the man. This is not about his answer. This is not about his amazing faith. This is about Jesus and his compassion to see this man and to heal this man. And at once... Not five minutes later, not the next day. Immediately he was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And notice, it wasn't dip in the water plus Jesus that healed this man. But it was Jesus plus nothing that made this man walk. It was Jesus alone, should I say. And so, look at the compassion. 38 years 38 years, this man must have been begging, must have been praying, must have been seeking for health and healing. Perhaps even, God, just make it in for me so I don't have to suffer anymore. And yet, Jesus comes and just heals him, blindsides him, if you will, with this compassion. Church, I don't want us to miss Jesus because we are just staring so hard at what's around us. Waiting for something to take place. Waiting for our, our government to rise up and to do something. Waiting for some sort of uh, movement we're a part of to make some sort of significant change. Just like staring at those waters in hope and anticipation that things will get better. 
And all the while, while we're just sitting there and waiting, we're missing Jesus, who is right with us. And so this is a reminder. Jesus had walked past the noise and the chaos of the day to come to you and to me when we were in our most weakened states with our weakened hearts, blind, lame hearts, and made us alive. He gave us living waters when we were just sitting there staring at everything else to provide for us the healing we thought we needed. So I want to remind you that all of us were spiritually blind, lame, paralyzed without Christ. But God has made us alive with Christ. And He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places. I didn't even plan on that Scripture being read today, and that's exactly what the Lord impressed upon me. And so we already have a seat in the kingdom of God because of Jesus. And look, Jesus is not a first-come, first-served sort of Savior and healer. That's not how He works. He has come to us. We don't have to go to the far ends of the globe to try to find healing. Right? There's only a certain number of people that can make it to Fiji. Those who have the money, those who have the time, those who have the determination. For everyone else, we just got to suffer forever, right? But that is not the case with the gospel of Jesus. We don't have to just go seeking and finding and figuring out the clues and piecing it all together, hoping that we can have healing. Jesus has come to us when we weren't even seeking Him. And He brought to us the stirring waters of salvation. And guess what? They're not dependent upon us jumping in quickly before anyone else, but entirely upon Jesus and His work to just wash us in His salvation. We just receive it by faith. And as as ambassadors of Jesus, we are to follow the example of Jesus and engage the spiritually blind, lame, and paralyzed. We are not to refrain, we are not to deter, but to engage and to do it with a heart of compassion and love, just as Jesus did towards this man and us. We're not to get caught up and distracted in the chaos of life, but to remain focused on the mission of God, that is to make disciples. Yes, we can and should go to the voting booth. Yes, we can and should protest when necessary. Yes, we should push for legislation to end abortion. Yes, we are to stand up for the defenseless. Yes, we are to stand up for those who are experiencing injustice. And we are to never lose sight of that. But do not get swept away that you find yourself only staring at waters that don't bring true healing. Do not get so caught up in the uprising of what's taking place in the country and feel like you have to power up and in so doing you overlook the call to lead others to living waters. To help others stop looking for incompetent healing, but to look to the one who provides real healing for those who recognize that they are truly weak. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus was so compassionate to heal this man. And just when you think it would be celebrated and God would be praised, we quickly find that the world 
takes what God has done for the man and turns it quickly into condemnation. And so we see stirring of condemning waters in verses 9 through 13. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So the Jews had a theology for the Sabbath, to put it simply and to the point, that went beyond God's word. It went beyond God's word. God's word spoke of the Sabbath in terms of being something that would be covenantal, a reminder that they are God's holy people, a reminder of God's salvation, of God rescuing. The Jews took some of the commands to uphold the Sabbath and ended up creating multi-level, multi-layers of definition of what it means to be lawful concerning the Sabbath. Let me illustrate that point. One of the things I learned while in Israel, and trust me, I'm no expert. I was there two weeks, okay? I know I reference it a lot every now and then. But when I was there, one of the crazy things I saw, during the Sabbath, everybody goes on Sabbath. Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And there is a large population of Jews who go and stay in hotels during the Sabbath. They leave their home and they go to hotels And the reason they do this is so that they can avoid work, avoid making their meals, avoid cleaning their rooms, making their beds, all those sorts of things. They leave that to the pagan Jews and to the Gentiles to make their food and to do all those sorts of things. But one of the things that was really fascinating was that the elevators run on, I don't know if this is what it's officially called or I just called it, sabbatical mode. You get into the elevator And they just constantly run. They literally stop at every floor, open and close, open and close, open and close. You can't push the button. It will just automatically do so. And why? Because pressing the button would be equivalent to striking a flame, electricity, and would thus be work. And so it's just operating on sabbatical mode. And that is a sort of legalism and really absurdity that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were operating under. You had to do this on the Sabbath. If you didn't, then you were outside of compliance, right? You were outside the will of God. You were in disobedience. You had to work hard on the rest day to be in obedience. Very ironic and contradictory. And so that is the sort of added work. So the Jews here in this story, they paid no mind. I mean, it's like it didn't even matter or it didn't even happen to the fact that this man who had been an invalid for 38 years had now been healed and received the mercy and grace of God. And they were more concerned about their laws of the Sabbath. Basically, why didn't you sacrifice enough after you were healed, to just leave the bed down on the ground and not do anything. They were more concerned about that to the point where they brought condemnation upon this man. So God's grace comes, His mercy comes, and then quickly, condemnation comes from the world. Matthew 12, 1-8 speaks of this, and I'm just giving a highlight of this. Jesus points the Jews to the story of David and his men. 
eating the consecrated bread meant only for the priests. And he also highlights the story of how the priests had profaned the temple on the Sabbath, and yet even in their actions are guiltless. So they knew David wasn't guilty of sin, and they knew the priests were not guilty here. And so Jesus calls them, really calls them out by Scripture, and he cites Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God has said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus was telling the Jews, and if you would have known what this passage means in Hosea, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And so the same is with this man. The Jews were unlike their God that they so-called believed in, and they were more about, they were desiring sacrifice and not mercy, though God is saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so Jesus answered them, or but excuse me, not Jesus, but the man answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they, the Jews, asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? You see that? They're focused on the law here. Now the man, verse 13, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So we might quickly glance over this story and never pay attention to the reality that Jesus is not sounding a gong. He's not making some sort of noise or pulling the crowds in to hear and to see him. In fact, Jesus is very discreet in how he operates to the point where not even the man knew who he was. That's how he is operating. This is also illustrated really well in Matthew twelve fifteen through 21. And another story says Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Listen to this. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That is a heart revolution. That is a heart revolution. And the temptation for us as Americans is that we have to get louder, stronger, more aggressive, more visible, more heard, more seen, just more known, more, more, more. But I want to caution that temptation And make sure that we do not live in such a way that does not follow in the example of Christ. I'm not saying you don't engage things. Jesus does. But the manner of which we engage things, we need to pay attention to. Our aim is not to start some uprising, a revolt, a revolution, but really a reformation. We want to see our society changed from the inside out, not the outside in. And that takes a lot more work. It takes a lot more of a humble, strategic approach as opposed to trying to force everybody's hand. And so here's the truth. When you bring the freedom of Christ to this broken world, 
you will experience condemnation. You will. The world will condemn you, will try to make you feel guilty, shameful for who you are in Christ. But you must be aware of that. And those of whom who come to faith in Jesus will also be condemned by the world. So as you engage the world and as you engage your friends, as you engage your families in whatever sphere you are in, when you call them to Christ, you are calling them to a life of suffering and being condemned and shamed by the world. What do you think will happen when folks, when you reach folks who come out of the LGBTQ community and follow Christ? Do you think they'll be received warmly by that community and celebrated? What do you think will happen to those who denounce Christian nationalism? Do you think it's going to be just playful and fun and nice that our hope is not in America and our hope is not in modern day Israel? What do you think will happen when doctors turn away from performing abortion and bring its practices to light? What do you think will happen to religious institutions who refuse to adopt the Equality Act and operate within their Christian values and morals? This is the uncomfortable realities of our world right now. If you read the news at all, you see these things. You see these pressures coming around. And when you call people, when you live out a Christ-like life, an example you will not be seen as favorable. You will not be seen as nice. You will not be as seen as okay to be around. You can be a friend of sinners, but granted on the popularity scale, you are going to be seen as an enemy and somebody who should be condemned or shut out. So look, there's no lack of condemnation that is headed our way in our culture and society. But as we engage, we must be the bastions of mercy and grace to sinners who would ultimately follow Jesus. We must conduct ourselves in such a way that when a sinner comes to faith, they know that they will receive, be received not with condemnation by us, but with grace and mercy. So in other words, the way we act and live and interact with the world around us, the way we engage in very uncomfortable spaces ought to be done with the same grace and mercy that when that person or if that person were to come to faith, they would be received with the same grace and mercy that you showed them before God saved them. Take time. And how do you, and how do, you do this? How do you prepare yourself? You have to take time every day to strengthen your weakened hearts by the grace and mercy of God through word and prayer. The world will seek to condemn you. And that should not come as a shock or surprise. It is our responsibility to then take what God has done in us and how He has washed us and cleansed us and to then apply that to the world around us to wash those around us with grace and mercy. And so the religious leaders here were, were quick to condemn this man. But if you notice, we'll see here, Jesus will be quick to celebrate his true freedom and healing. And we'll see the stirring of holy waters in 14 and 15. And so afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, 
See, you are well. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the man was not in the temple. He was outside the temple. He was at the pool by the sheep gate. And now, for the first time, the man is able to get up and walk and to go into the temple and to worship his God. And guess who he runs into? God. (laughs) And Jesus approaches him saying, you're well. You're doing great. You're looking wonderful. This is nice to see. And so that's a wonderful sight to behold. Jesus celebrates the man's healing. He doesn't question him picking up the mat. In fact, Jesus told him to, and the man did it. The man knew the laws, but he didn't even think about it. He just did what Jesus had asked him to do. The man was not a project. He wasn't healed for show. Jesus wasn't just trying to make his name big at the expense of this man's healing. Jesus had legitimate care and compassion for this man. In fact, when he saw the man, he just wanted to follow up and say, man, look at you. You're doing so well. And so he cares for his soul and he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is not saying that the man's sin is the result of some 38 years of sickness. Or that he'll become sick again in these terms because of his sin. But the context is in correlation to the judgment to come. The eschaton, the future. In verses just after this, Jesus is going to be talking about how he is been how he has been given power and authority from the father and the father has called him to judge one day this man is going to stand before jesus the judge and he is going to be judged not by his physical healing but by whether or not his heart has been healed his heart has been changed so jesus isn't throwing on another layer of condemnation here. But what Jesus is doing, he's saying, go live a holy and righteous life. Live a godly life. And so the man went away and he told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. I don't believe the man was telling on Jesus and I don't, and I don't think he was intending for Jesus to get in trouble, so to speak. He was just doing what he was told by the leaders and he just relayed the information. That's Jesus. That's the one who healed me. The same one who in that temple not too long ago had overturned tables because the Jews had taken the place that would be a place of prayer for the Gentiles and the nations and turned it into a den of robbers. So Jesus comes in again, stirring the waters this time, flipping the tables of the soul, showing that Worship is not bound up in the law of the Jews. So here he is, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, providing a necessary healing of the soul to a man who also happened to have a disability. We are to live holy, sinless lives. We do this in response to the wonderful work of Jesus. We don't do this in order to receive the wonderful work of Jesus. Jesus paid for our sins and he made us righteous. And so our life ought to be a life of no longer sinning, but to pursue him in worship and adoration. 
We don't go on not sinning anymore to earn our way to Jesus, but in response to the life that Jesus has given to us. And that is truly good and truly joyful. That is worth celebrating. The man could walk, not because he mustered up the will to do so. Jesus didn't say, hey, look, you're doing great because of what you did. And neither does Jesus look at us going, man, you're doing great because of what you did. He does it on our behalf. And so we are perfect. We are perfect beings in Christ. And he looks at us and he says, you look great. And so I want to remind you that living a life of holiness is what Jesus not only called the man to do during such a tumultuous time, but it is what Jesus is calling us to do even today. And so I bring us back to just the the craziness that's happening all around us. And it's really easy to get distracted, to get unfocused, to just sit there and watch the news, watch the waters all day long, waiting for something hopeful to happen. But Jesus is calling us to live holy lives. He wants us to live holy lives. Does your activism scream louder than your desire to be holy? Does your passion for change overshadow your desire to know God's word and to make him known? When people see you, do they see your impact or do they see Christ in you, the hope of glory? Church, we have to be careful to not allow the world to distract us from what is most important. That is, be holy as your father is holy. Abiding in Christ, exalting Jesus, for it is Jesus who removes our condemnation and he removes our enslavement to sin and then enslaves us to his grace and mercy. So Jesus removes condemnation from the man. And knowing that by doing so, Jesus ultimately created an invitation for deadly persecution. Stirring of deadly waters, verses 16 through 18. And this was why, so John now gives us a description. Because of what Jesus has done, these horrible things, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Again, they had these extra laws, man-made laws, they added to the Sabbath and Jesus wasn't abiding by them. Instead, Jesus was actually fulfilling the Sabbath in the way that God had originally intended. So the Sabbath was to remind God's people of the salvation that was brought to them by God's grace and mercy. And here was salvation in the flesh. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, And I am working. What Jesus is doing is he is making really this claim that he is in perfect harmony and compliance with the father. What the father does, I do. He loves me. I love him. We'll get into this great, really, discourse in August. But what Jesus is doing is what the father has been doing. Nothing different. Jesus isn't coming onto the scene contradicting the Father, bringing a whole new interpretation to the Sabbath other than what the Father had already given. In fact, he's giving the correct and right understanding of the Sabbath and what the Father meant. And so what this ultimately means is that 
what the Father meant for the Sabbath is ultimately and perfectly realized in Jesus. This further means that whatever the Jews had made the Sabbath to be differs entirely from what the Father had originally designed. They, thinking they were drawing closer to God, were actually moving further away, and Jesus comes in. You can't be any closer to the Father than Jesus. And so in conjunction to what I read earlier from Matthew 12, Mark 2 says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God had made Sabbath for the man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Father desires mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is the King. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath was not designed to enslave people to works, but to ultimately set them free from works. Stop working and behold your God. It is the Father who ultimately works, not man. It is the Father who calls sinners into His rest, not our working out of the law to gain rest. The law reveals ultimately our broken state, but the law never requires of us to attain it in our own strength. Because we can't. And so Jesus here is the perfection of the law for us. Perfect fulfillment of all the Psalms and the prophets, the commands, everything. And we are called, Hebrews says, to enter into His rest. 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. By calling God His Father and claiming to carry on the work of the Father, Jesus was putting Himself on equal grounds with the Father in terms of deity, power, authority. They, there was no mincing of words here. The Jews weren't confused about what Jesus was saying. And so to the Jews, Jesus is being blasphemous. And of course, if anyone other than Jesus were to say those words in the way that Jesus meant them, it would be blasphemous. But as John reminds us in the first chapter that this is the unique Son of God, Jesus. And so for him, this is not blasphemy, but this is truth. And so now the religious leaders were challenged. These men who claim to know and understand God the most are now dealing with a man who claims to have God as their father, claims to have an authority and power that would not only make the Jews uneasy, but possibly cause Rome to buckle down even more. The last thing that these religious leaders need is somebody to rise up and claim to be the king and claim to have authority and overpower Rome. That would just make things really, really difficult. And so there's a unique pressure these leaders are feeling. And if we boil it down to this, they ultimately have to choose, do they fear man or do they fear God? So church, when we live our lives for Jesus in this world, it will not be popular. It's not going to be popular. And look, Jesus never sought persecution. And I don't think we need to willingly go out, hey, I just want to be persecuted. I think we need to go out and be faithful and obedient to him. And persecution will come just naturally. Persecution came to Jesus. He didn't seek it out. 
but he wasn't going to skirt the truth from this man in order to avoid the cross. And honestly, it needed to happen. Because if Jesus doesn't make it to the cross, then we have no hope. We have no salvation. We have no freedom for our sins. And paradoxically, we are called to example Jesus' life. And when we do, we can expect a road that is difficult and full of suffering. Where do you think we are sending our people when we send them around the globe to go plant churches? I think we're sending them in the easy territory where people just go, oh, you're welcome here. We're so glad to have you. We've only been believing this religion for millennia now. We would love to completely change that and just do whatever it is that you have to provide. No, there's hostility. But it's worth it. It's worth it that others might know Christ and make him known. It's easier to comply because there's less friction. But Jesus is not calling us to a life of less friction, but to a life that picks up our cross and carries it. So let's take a moment and let's assume the waters of Fiji, back to the story from the beginning. Let's assume they do provide some real, genuine, miraculous healing. What is the end result of that healing? What's the aim of it? What is the trajectory of the lives of those who would find healing? Do they, like the man of this story, go away, perhaps giving praise to Jesus, worshiping God in the temple? Or do they just simply marvel in the stirring waters of Fiji? Do they spend more time telling the gospel of Fiji water or telling others the gospel of Jesus, the living water? Church, we have drank from the living waters of Christ. And as a result, the waters that surround us are stirring. And soon they will become tumultuous, but we must be like the man who was healed and remain focused on Jesus and obedience to Him. And why? Because there is real freedom in the stirring waters of salvation. Really, than there is in the stirring waters of the world. And so as disciples, we are called to enter into troubled waters, offering the world the healing waters of Christ, knowing the world will bring condemnation, they will bring persecution, but even as it does, we are able to, by the power of the Spirit, to live holy, righteous lives because Jesus has taken our weakened, sinful hearts and made them strong and alive by paying the ultimate price of dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Amen? Jesus is healing. Jesus is the healing waters that has stirred our souls in worship towards Him.